I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the current state of affairs in Hong Kong. July 1st marked the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover from British to Chinese rule. While the terms of that handover promised Hong Kong considerable political autonomy under the one country, two systems framework, Beijing has not kept its promise and has eroded Hong Kong's democratic institutions and freedoms. Meanwhile, the global financial hub continues to be an essential component of Asian trade and business. Hong Kong consistently ranks as one of the wealthiest cities in the world. On July 1st, Chinese President Xi Jinping made his first visit to Hong Kong since the 2019 protests, and Hong Kong's new chief executive John Lee was sworn in. Upon taking office, Mr. Lee faces a range of challenges, including navigating domestic discontent and guiding Hong Kong through the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. How is Hong Kong changing under Chinese rule? What is the future of this unique city? Joining me to discuss these questions is Daniel Tinkate, Asia Government Managing Editor at Bloomberg News. Mr. Tinkate manages a team of reporters for Bloomberg that covers East and Southeast Asia, and is a resident of Hong Kong. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Nice to be here.、Uh, so the topic of our discussion today is Hong Kong and the 25th anniversary of the British handover of Hong Kong this year. So I'd like to start by briefly discussing what is so important and how do you see this 25th anniversary this month? How has Hong Kong changed in this quarter century under Chinese rule? Certainly, it's changed dramatically over the past 25 years. You know, back in 1997, there was a lot of concerns, obviously, but there was some fear mixed with hope that Hong Kongers could finally run their own affairs and keep the freedoms that they had. Enjoyed. It wasn't a democracy under British rule, but they did enjoy the freedom to protest, a, a vigorous free press, things like that. That they were scared once China came in that they would lose those things. What we've seen is really three main areas. You know, the economy, politics, and just kind of the accessibility of Hong Kong has really changed dramatically. I mean, if you look at the economy in particular, we had a story. Last week, actually, just kind of about the broken billionaire factory in Hong Kong. How since 1997, there's been no new billionaires, and most of the ones that they do have are reliant on real estate. So about 70% of the wealthy have some sort of interest in real estate now, and that has led to to one of the world's most unequal cities. Really, you have these cage coffin homes contrasting with mansions that sell for more than a hundred million dollars. So that's one side of it. It's really an indictment that they've had a failure to produce new wealth and and really create some innovative industries like we've seen across the border, in the tech hub of Shenzhen, for example. Politically, is another obvious example. In the past two years, there used to be a vigorous opposition in Legco. You'd have a lot of、uh, debates. I mean, the the ultimate ruler of the city, the chief executive, that everyone knew that there would be someone pro-China. China had to sign off on that. But there was an understanding that there would at least be a race, some sort of contest, some sort of policy debate that would take place during those elections. And that, of course, is now completely gone. And and along those same lines, there used to be a lot of street protests in Hong Kong. 2003 over the national security law, you had the Occupy movement, you had a debate over universal suffrage. All that is now gone as well. And finally, just accessibility. You know, Hong Kong's place as Asia's world city. 
a big international hub. People used to come here from all corners of Asia. You could get here easily from Tokyo and Singapore. It was kind of right in the middle of everything in a, in a perfect location. And, you know, now that's sort of gone with COVID zero and COVID zero is just completely linked to mainland China. So this place has been cut off for you know two and a half years, basically since the pandemic began. So, you know, the feel of the city started to change with the protests and the national security law. But with COVID, it's such a, you know, visible in your face kind of reality every day about how just isolated Hong Kong has become on the world stage. Dan, you mentioned a really interesting point that there has been no billionaires since 1997 and the rising inequality in Hong Kong. How much of that was a trend that Hong Kong was already on prior to its return back to China? And how much of that was exacerbated by the Chinese rule afterwards? Well, certainly during that time, you know, there there was Lee Keqing in particular as you know the Superman, where he was involved in all of these industries, and you had these billionaires kind of taking, the, I guess, the low hanging fruit really of of just trying to to work up as an industrial center and just build up wealth uh, that way. After 1997, you had China join the World Trade Organization. And so a lot of the manufacturing that Hong Kong was built upon and that really made the economy take off uh, then shifted to the mainland. So, you know, part of it is wider economic trends. But there's also, you know, the problem that Hong Kong did not really evolve since then into really attracting these startups and these new areas of, of wealth generation. Part of that is is because the rents were so high. So it was kind of, you know, this self-fulfilling prophecy in a way where you had these billionaires uh, making their money off of high rents. And so that, if you're a startup company, it didn't make any sense to really come here. And the government had no incentive really to, you know, stop that. And, you know, part of it's the, the land avail- availability problem. You know, Hong Kong is mostly, you know, mountains and country parks and, and just places that aren't suitable to build on. Uh, but the other part of that is that about a third of Hong Kong's revenue comes from land premiums and stamp duties. So it's connected to real estate. So for them, these land auctions, and um, they're just a way to make money and a way to keep the tax rate uh, relatively low, which, which attracts, you know, the financial industry in particular. As you look at Hong Kong, China's rule over Hong Kong, how do you view China's implementation of the one country, two systems in Hong Kong? Has that framework changed in the last couple of years? Uh, yes, certainly. It's it's changed quite dramatically in the past couple of years. And, you know, if you go back to 1997 and how it was supposed to work, you know, there was an element of democracy or at least civil liberties included in that. And so we saw that with, you know, this long history of, of citizens feeling like they had the right to speak up and, and say, we don't agree with this and to hit the streets. And the government more or less allowed them to do that. And we saw Beijing react um, to that. You know, the 2003, the national security laws, that proposal got pushed back due to massive street protests. 2012, you had the government shelve a proposal for national education over protests. The umbrella uh, movement in 2014, you know, referring to universal suffrage, which was kicked back. So you had these periods of protest where the government would respond to that and actually, and you know, remove controversial proposals. Um, and of course, the, the final example of that was 2019 with the extradition law, where initially it was knocked back. 
but then, the, you know, the protests kept going and going, of course, and, and got more violent as they did and eventually led to the national security law, which completely changed uh, one country, two systems actually means. So for China at the moment, that just means the two systems is related to economics, essentially. Politics are completely the same. There is no politics in Hong Kong anymore to the extent of anything that could be seen challenging the Communist Party. So that is the definition of one country, two systems, and how Beijing sees it basically relates to economic systems. Now, you're a capitalist, we're a socialist, um, you have free markets and you can move money in and out of the country freely, and in, in Beijing you can't. And, and that, you know, that formulation for Beijing works quite well. They don't want to get rid of that in the sense that it actually benefits the Chinese economy to have Hong Kong be an open system where they have access to international markets and, and credibility. And you saw Xi Jinping July 1, where he spoke about you know the fact that, that Hong Kong had this common law system and capitalism and said you know that Hong Kong will remain like that. And that's fine with Beijing as long as they're using it for the intended purpose which is to, you know, allow Chinese companies, state-run companies in particular, to raise capital here and for, you know, Chinese leaders to, you know, be able to move money in and out. So that's kind of how China sees Hong Kong at the moment. And that's why when you hear references to one country, two systems, China still endorses that, but it means something very different to people in Hong Kong right now. Since Hong Kong's return to China, how much have you seen changes to Hong Kong's economy? as it moves closer or greater or even more linked to China? Yeah, there's sort of the physical links that we've seen in the past 20 years. There's, there's a new high-speed rail train between um, Hong Kong and Shenzhen and Guangzhou. There's also a bridge to Macau and Zhuhai, um, 34 miles long, the longest sea crossing in the world, along with some tunnels that was completed in 2018. Um, these things, of course, have been barely used over the past couple of years due to the the shutting of, of the border during COVID. But, you know, we've seen more recently China come in and build these massive isolation centers, including one on the, on the former airport runway of Kai Tak, which is sort of an iconic spot on the Victoria Harbor there. There's also plans afoot to create this northern metropolis, which is this area across from Shenzhen, which is meant to be part of the Greater Bay Area, which is China's big plan to link Hong Kong with uh, the mainland into some sort of Silicon Valley-esque economic development area. You know, and this does make sense for Hong Kong's future development. There's two districts in particular that are right next to the mainland border. That's, you know, a lot of unused farmland. They have about a quarter of Hong Kong's total land area and only a million residents of the 7.5 million residents. So plan is to really try and double the population size there and use that as a area to have more affordable housing. So there's definitely the future plans of Hong Kong and where the economy goes from here are certainly linked to the mainland. Um, just financially, we've also seen just a huge influx of Chinese companies into the market here. And, you know, Chinese brokers are dominating the, the IPO league compared with Western banks back in 1997. So uh, mainland Chinese firms now make up 80% of the market value on the Hong Kong exchange. This was after the first 
mainland firm was listed back in 1993. So that shows the extent to which financially China's become a player here. China's got the mega, biggest mobile phone operator at the moment. Their infrastructure companies were dominating. They won about half of the government infrastructure projects last year from 8% in 2018. So, you know, there's all facets of China's economy. You see mainland firms coming in here and really doing well and kind of taking up a bunch of market share across the economy. Have these activities benefited your average day local Hong Kong resident or citizen? I would say people here are quite apprehensive about it. I mean, I think there's a real sense that if you don't speak Mandarin now, that you, you're not going to get ahead in, in some of these companies. And so for a lot of Hong Kongers, they're wondering, you know, where, where their future lies. Do you know, are they going to get bumped out compared with someone on the mainland who's coming in or someone uh, local who speaks Mandarin uh, more than them? So I think that's, that's one of the big fears here. You also see a lot of younger Hong Kong people emigrating and moving to the UK, particularly because you know the, the UK just historically had uh, issued passports here to, to British nationals um, overseas. So after the national security law was put in place, the UK offered to accept people with those passports. And we've seen a lot of Hong Kongers just take that up and, and start over. So for, for some, of course, you know, if they're, if they're on these, in these companies, they've benefited. And there's certainly people who do believe in the promise of the greater Bay Area and, and they see that as, as being a good thing uh, for China's future. And there's others who still see their future somewhere else. You know, they valued Hong Kong's international connections more. And, you know, the prospect of going to study or, or work in, in London or New York to a lot of people is seen as better than, than trying to take a job in uh, Shenzhen or somewhere else on the mainland. Uh, so earlier we talked about, or rather you talked about uh, recent changes, particularly since the 2019 protests, the 2020 national security law. And we also just briefly talked about the impact of some of these greater connections with the mainland on local Hong Kong residents. But how have all these changes impacted, if anything at all, in terms of Hong Kong's overall business climate? In particular, are foreign firms more uh, interested in uh, working in Hong Kong? Or do you see shifts in um, how both international and local firms operate in Hong Kong? We're definitely seeing shifts in the business climate. And a lot, probably COVID is a, is a bigger factor in that than the national security law. You know, a lot of businesses welcomed the national security law when it came in. They didn't like the, the protests that were going on. And for the most part, foreign businesses in particular, it didn't affect them too much. The, the issue with the restrictions we've seen over COVID and the hotel quarantine in particular is that you've seen a lot of people just wanting to leave the city, particularly among the expat community, wanting to move to Singapore, to London, just, just to get out of Hong Kong and to live a normal life. So that's been affecting a lot of companies here. Hong Kong was always a place where you would stop in for two or three days while you did another trip around the region. So it's just being bypassed as other locations open up. So I think the next six months in that regard are probably pretty crucial. You see a lot of the countries getting rid of PCR testing to get in, Singapore in particular. There's no test. You can just fly in and out as you wish now. And so that's going to put a lot of pressure on, on Hong Kong to either open up or just 
see more people flow out of here, companies in particular, and companies won't leave necessarily. They're not going to just totally pack up shop, but they might reduce uh, their headcounts here, you know, by a certain amount. So you'll, you'll, you'll just see a diminished presence of companies here and they'll be scaling up in other places um, around Asia. As far as the, the national security law, I mean, a lot of companies wouldn't really see an issue in the court system yet, but there is that, that question that's just opened up a can of worms over whether ultimately Hong Kong's legal system can be trusted. And so that's more of a longer term concern that I think, you know, you'll you'll definitely have to see some test cases along the way that, that will show whether companies feel safe doing business here. Certainly there's a few already that uh, people, you know, lawyers in particular who defend um, national security law cases. Um, that's a big question mark. Questions over, you know, what, what analysts can say and get away with without being, you know, somehow accused of some sort of crime, speech crime. So so these are issues that could come up over the coming years. I think internet freedom is also another one. Censorship, you know, if, you know, Google or some of the other big tech firms, if they get, they get pressured to censor like they do in the mainland, then that'll also certainly have an impact on the business climate as well. So moving a little bit beyond um, how companies regard the changing climate, you mentioned questions, concerns about how chi- how Hong Kong's courts will continue to hold up and whether they will be able to operate as prior to the national security law. How is this interpreted by local residents? Do they still have confidence in Hong Kong's courts or how do locals view what's happening in terms of the overall changes brought about by the national security law, aside from the protests? Yeah, certainly that it's a big question mark at the moment. There was a lot of faith in the courts. Um, Even during 2019, when a lot of protesters were being thrown in jail, there was funds that were set up to help the protesters, to bail them out, to pay their legal fees. A lot of them were students and they didn't have any money. So they would keep the card of a lawyer they could call in their pockets if, if they got into trouble and they were arrested. There was people there that would come and help. China's really gone after all the people who did that. So from their perspective, if, if you're on the side of the pro-democracy camp here, you would have little faith in the court system that you would get a fair hearing and get off. What we have seen is that a lot of charges actually have been thrown out. I mean, so, you know, a lot of these cases did not stand up in court. So to that extent, you know, if, if you have a case before there, before a judge and, and say it's not a, a massive national security law crime, but, but something else, something related to protesting in 2019 or breaking curfew or, or something like that, you know, you might have a chance to get off. But the general feeling is that the deck is stacked against you. And if, and, you know, if you are a major player in all of this, that you're not going to get a fair shot. And that's just a, a feeling that persists. And that's why we have not really seen many protests since the national security law came into effect. You now just have to weigh the possibility that you will spend a significant chunk of your life in jail if you go out and protest. And so a lot of people are just saying, is that worth it? And do they really think they're going to get a fair shot in the courts? And also, not only that, but what is the law right now? Where is the line? I think that's the bigger question. You know, whether the courts are interpreting it or not, you know, the, the, the line of where the what is permissible under the national security law is very unclear right now. So 
until that gets sorted out, until they have a case where, you know, they say this kind of protesting is allowed and this isn't allowed and people feel confident that, okay, there's a precedent set there. You know, most of them are not at this point willing uh, to take that risk. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are in jail who were taking lots of risks all the time. But, um, you know, to, it, that's why it's hard to see a mass protest movement starting again anytime soon. It's just so buttoned down. And the people who were participating are so demoralized um, and sc- sort of scattered at this point that it seems unlikely that you would see that again uh, for the foreseeable future. So Dan, I know that you're also based in Hong Kong, and you mentioned the sort of the gray line of we're not exactly sure where is the sort of the red line that you can't cross when it comes to national security law. How does this pertain to reporters in the media in terms of operating in Hong Kong? Are there we've we've seen reports of certain media organizations being uh, shut down for various offenses, right? But is there a clear sense among reporters like you, like? What topics, if you, well, I guess not so much you, but maybe some of the more local reporters, if they are, if they cover certain topics, they might be crossing a line, or is there a good sense among folks in the uh, reporters in the region? Yeah, among the, the the threat is squarely on the local reporters at the moment. You know that could change at some point, but we've we've just seen them systematically target all the pro democracy newspapers since the, the national security law came into effect. You know, of course, there was Jimmy Lai's Apple Daily and Jimmy Lai's in jail and with just a whole range of charges against him now and unclear if he'll ever get out of prison. But, you know, they Beijing went right after them in particular. Stan News was another one. There's been others as well that, that just closed their operations uh, because they, they didn't want to risk, you know, their whole staff ending up in jail if if that would be the case. So that that line there there does seem to be a different line for how um, local journalists are treated versus foreign journalists at the moment and definitely if you're on the local side you you bear a lot more risk than foreign journalists. Foreign journalists though, are kind of wondering where that line stands. We haven't really seen that particularly the government will complain a lot and and they do complain a lot and they'll write letters and things like that but as far as any any action that says no you can't write about Xi Jinping or you can't criticize the government we we haven't really seen that at all really we have seen however uh, the the foreign correspondents club suspended its human rights press awards recently and that was a very controversial decision that was opposed by a lot of correspondents including myself um, but that was because there was fear that if they went ahead with giving award an award to Stan News, which was a local publication, that the FCC would also be seen as aiding or abetting sedition in that sense. So so these are the conversations going on at the moment. I, I think the debate is now how much are people self-censoring you know, in anticipation of a charge rather than actually feeling a threat that there there could be a charge. Obviously, it's very hard to say that, um, you know, there's always a threat and always a risk, uh, however small in these areas. But we haven't really seen Beijing be proactive in drawing a, a fresh line, uh, particularly among the foreign press. Among the local press, yes, I mean, the standard has been set. We've seen them shut down publications and, and anyone who does step out of line just bears the risk of the same thing happening to them. 
And are you confident that this, I guess, laxer treatment of foreign press will continue? Or is this something that you're worried about moving forward would be eroded or could be eroded? I think it could certainly be eroded. I think, you know, you just you just have to look to the mainland, really, and see what it's like over there. And it's certainly, you know, much more restrictive than it is here. So there, there is more space here. I mean, we don't even... Uh, you know, we're more restrictive with bylines in, in, in the mainland, of course. Uh, you don't really see that here at the moment, though some publications are, are moving in that direction. So th- there's a sense that the space is narrowing, but it's not as narrow as it is in the mainland uh, so far. So I'd like to um, close this podcast on some questions about both Hong Kong moving forward, as well as reflecting very briefly on the leaders, Hong Kong's leadership. Um, from your perspective, how do you view the legacy of the Carrie Lam administration? And now that her tenure has just ended, are you seeing more folks being more candid about assessing her, whether her strongest supporters or some of her strongest detractors? Uh, well, certainly the the legacy of, of the Lam administration is, is essentially ending political freedom Hong Kong enjoyed and sort of ushering in a new period of, of mainland dominance. Uh, the national security law, in, in addition to kind of suppressing free speech, it actually created a new bureaucracy, which essentially put, you know, gave the liaison officer, which is Beijing's sort of main person overseeing the city, a direct and running security affairs. And of course, everything now is a national security issue in Hong Kong, so that anything that's deemed remotely threatening to the Communist Party will fall under that spectrum. So so things have changed massively as far as autonomy goes. It's really hard to say who her strongest supporters are at the moment. She's finished with an approval rating of 36, which was higher than kind of most of the time. It was mostly in the mid-20s through for the last three years. Um, so she's kind of despised by the, the pro-democracy movement, of course. But she also wasn't liked by the Hong Kong elite either or Beijing. Um, and, you know, people will usually whisper that and rarely come out and, and say that publicly, although there have been there has been some veiled sort of sniping at her. But, you know, our reporting indicates she was seen as stubborn. She didn't get along with a lot of people. She was seen as, you know, not very well liked. And, you know, there were indications Beijing wanted her out, too, that she was, you know, she was eligible for another five years. There were indications she did want another term in office. But, you know, eventually Beijing went with um, John Lee, who's more on the security side, a former police officer, et cetera. So, and Carrie Lam herself is, you know, basically indicated that she was happy to to leave. You know, she, it never seemed actually that she was terribly interested in the job to begin with. And she sort of ended up overseeing one of the most tumultuous periods Hong Kong has ever had. So in, in some ways, she's probably relieved to step aside at the moment. So you just mentioned uh, John Lee, uh, Hong Kong's new chief uh, executive. But you mentioned his more his more his security background. How do you envision his his leadership as changing Hong Kong as we move into the future? Do you see him as cracking down and using that security law more, or is he more of a person just to keep the boat steady as it moves forward? Yeah, John Lee. I mean, he was picked because he oversaw the crackdown on the twenty nineteen protesters. He was. Security chief then, he has a, a background in the police. So he's, you know, definitely seen as someone who will crack the whip when necessary. And Beijing is very comfortable um, that he'll put a lid on any of the political stuff. As far as 
you know, on the business side, he has really no track record. He's not very well known at all in the business community. It's a bit unclear what he's actually going to do. You know, the people he's met on the business side and the diplomatic side say he's open to ideas. He seems quite worldly. So he, you know, there's a chance he could sur- surprise in not being so hardline and just being more pragmatic. Although, you know, Ultimately, at the end of the day, he got the job because he's a good soldier and he's going to do essentially what Beijing wants. Um, and there were questions about, you know, whether Carrie Lam was was doing that all the time. So, you know, from from that side, the, you know, Hong Kong is at a crossroads in a sense. And, and Lee is sort of the embodiment of that. He couldn't, you know, how is he going to govern? It's, it's a real question mark. We know on the political side, there's no going back to pre-2020. The national security law is cemented in there, and we're not going to see Hong Kong like it was before then. But I think there's still a question about how does Hong Kong carve a new identity in this sort of shifted situation they're in now? You know, what does autonomy mean now? Can Hong Kong actually go back to being an international financial hub with some sort of autonomy or does it just get subsumed into the mainland, really? As you look to Hong Kong's future, what do you see as the most pressing challenges that Lee will face? And where do you expect the future of Hong Kong's relations with both China and the world to be moving forward? Yeah, the most pressing challenge is to restore some sort of policy certainty to, to Hong Kong. And, and that goes to the question of opening up. And that's such a crucial question here because it's really... The only question, I mean, there's not much of, there's no politics as, as we've discussed anymore. That's not really happening. So the question is, how do you get the economy moving again? And that question is really linked with how do you open up the borders again? Now, Hong Kong's essentially an island at the moment. There's no way into the mainland. That border is closed, um, but they also can't fully open overseas. So the question is, how do you open up and restore Hong Kong as an international financial hub? while meeting Beijing's requirements to get the, get the mainland border open and, and reduce cases. So John Lee will say that every time at a press briefing now that, you know, we're going to bring down cases and we're also going to open up to the world. And that's inherently contradictory. And it remains to be seen how he's actually going to do that without implementing some sort of mainland style controls or mass testing or, or something like that. And so that, that's a big fear of a lot of people there here right now. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, the next month or two in Hong Kong is going to be crucial to see which way he goes. Does he do anything or is Hong Kong just stuck in this sort of limbo for months on end where it's very unclear? Um, you don't have really any solid direction from the mainland. You know, you, you constantly have the threat of mass testing or flight bans. You kind of ease and then you tighten up again. You know, if this sort of thing happens, you'll continue to see an exodus from the city, you know, from both locals and from foreigners, probably. You know, as for Hong Kong's relations with China, I think that speaks to the same thing, is can Hong Kong assert its autonomy in some way that makes it distinct from the mainland while still kind of appeasing them on the political side, which is kind of the space that they're in right now. 
um, Xi Jinping made that very clear that you have to respect the Communist Party, and that was that was an order. Um, so we we know what it's going to be on that side of things, but the question is really how can how can they change? And one of Xi Jinping's main points in the July one speech, he talked about a balance between the government and the market. So we could see more mainland influence on policymaking. We've seen Xi Jinping go after billionaires and and tycoons in, on the mainland, particularly in the tech sector. So if you're a Hong, uh, tycoon in Hong Kong right now, you might be. Uh, fairly concerned about that, particularly since most of them are landlords and land and property is one of the biggest issues here. And in fact, Xi Jinping said that Hong Kong people desire above all a bigger apartment. Of course, you know, that kind of doesn't take into account two million people on the, on the streets pushing for democracy, but that question is so far off the table. You know, as far as Hong Kong's relations with the rest of the world, um, you know, the city's credibility is pretty much shot. It's seen as just um, not a separate entity from China, and that was made evident, you know, when the, when the U.S. pulled uh, its special status after the national security law was put in place. We do have APEC coming up. Hong Kong is still a member of APEC, so John Lee will be able to speak there. And we've seen that Hong Kong wants to have these international trade missions again. Um, how do you do that when you still have five days of mandatory hotel quarantine? <laughs> Impossible to say, but they are going to try and hold some big business um, gatherings here in the next six months. So, you know, whether they could do that and, and kind of restart Hong Kong as an international hub remains to be seen. A lot will come down to how how does Hong Kong navigate its position kind of caught between China and the rest of the world? Um, we saw it hit with sanctions after the national security law. But that's also put banks in, in particular in a quandary. You know, the U.S. has sanctions on any banks who do business with Hong Kong officials, for instance. We've seen that even the Chinese state-run banks in Hong Kong are so far complying with U.S. sanctions. Uh, this is even as China tries to pass legislation and do other things that push back against American sanctions. So, you know, you could potentially see a scenario down the road where China does try and force the issue in a place like Hong Kong and force companies to pick sides. So I think for companies going forward, it's going to be, you know, uh, how do they position themselves between the U.S. and China, in particular in the U.K. and other places. But, you know, HSBC is a, a classic example of sort of, of getting caught in the middle uh, between both sides and not being able to please anyone, really. So, you know, how does that kind of pressure either ease or get worse over the next five years? I, I think that that's kind of a major question mark looming over the city right now. But all, all of these things, in all of these things, it comes back to the, the sense that Hong Kong's future is very uncertain at the moment. You know, John Lee repeated and Xi Jinping repeated that Hong Kong, you know, should be an international city. But there's going to be crucial things that, that need to happen in the next couple of months to see if that will really happen. And, um, you know, five years from now, it'll be interesting to look back and, and see how that panned out. So Dan, one final, final question, given all that you mentioned, uh, personally, are you, do you believe that Hong Kong's future is uncertain or are you more pessimistic about Hong Kong's future? Because I hear a little bit of both. Just wanted to circle back with you on this. I think pessimism is kind of depends what aspect of Hong Kong we're talking about. If you're someone who sees Hong Kong and you're fine with Hong Kong being close and integrated to the mainland, you know, in that sense, the future is probably okay. <laughs> um, this city has a future. It, it definitely has a future. It's a great place to live. The people are amazing. They're critical thinkers. You know, it's it's just as far as 
places in Asia you could be based. You know, this is still one of the best. The landscape is beautiful. The nightlife is great. Uh, you can be hiking, you know, amazing trails, be all by yourself. There's beaches. So, you know, Hong Kong re retains a lot of attractive points to live here. And I personally do enjoy uh, living here. But if you're someone who, you know, if you're 20 years old in Hong Kong and, you know, you fought in the, for democracy and you've seen that stripped away and you've seen, you know, mainland companies come in dominating the economy and the future lies in China and you don't want any part of that, um, you know, you, you're very pessimistic about that scenario. And I think that's what people are feeling now a lot here is just the feeling of, of loss. And it's almost, you know, this grieving that's going on, both among locals um, who've seen their city just almost change overnight. And, and you know, a lot of longtime expats who, who were here for the handover and, and they've watched the city change dramatically and they're, you know, almost in mourning and, and, and leaving. And, and there's been, um, you know, all sorts of stories like that, that that seem to be the norm over the past six months to a year in particular. So so there's, there's a lot of mixed emotions. Um, you know, Hong Kong will thrive as something. The question is, does it thrive as, does it retain uh, this character that it had? Of course, it's lost a lot of that, but there's still a lot of it remaining in the spirit of the people in particular. I mean, this is still a place on Chinese soil where you have a lot of, you know, Chinese people who are very much opposed to the Communist Party. So that alone makes it an interesting place going forward as far as, um, you know, how does the party handle that? How does this, you know, how do these ideas live on in a place, you know, where the Communist Party is actively trying to suppress that, both by, you know, starting young with education. They're trying to revamp the curriculums in schools. They're trying to say Hong Kong was not a British colony even before. So th that process is going, it's going on, but, you know, it's going to take a long time and, and to, to, to think that it's going to just, you know, affect everybody in Hong Kong is a hard thing to believe. So this is going to be a problem for China going forward as well for, for years to come. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for joining us and particularly for portraying such a complex both history as well as path forward potentially for Hong Kong. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.